Well, thank you for allowing me to come and stand behind this pulpit and share with you something from God's Word. I've had this opportunity a few times before, but it's been quite a while since the last time. And it's always my goal to make you happy to have your pastor back in the pulpit next week, as he is a much better preacher uh, than I. Nevertheless, I am happy to be with you this morning. Uh, And being happy is something that most people like to be. Uh, And uh, Christians should be. But with the current culture and political turmoil within which we find ourselves, it's sometimes hard to be happy. It's difficult to survive the constant onslaughts, don't you think, of the media and, the, uh, and maintain our overall well-being. Uh, and our happiness quotient tends to be diminished at this time every other year uh, because of what we hear on TV and social media. It's not easy to turn them off uh, because, as the actor Denzel Washington once said, if you don't listen to the news, you are uninformed And if you listen to the news, you are misinformed. Uh, We Christians uh, listen, are supposed to be happy. Pastor and author John Piper wrote a book entitled Christian Hedonism, in which he posited that pursuing happiness was not only permissible within a Christian's life, it was necessary, and the pursuit of happiness brings glory to God. John Piper, whose father... William Solomon Hoddle Piper was named after one of our BFC pastors known in uh, our archives as W.S. Hoddle, and who was a pastor and evangelist in this part of Berks County from 1902 to 1920, which makes him one of your own, and he very well may have been here. And Piper noted that in the Westminster Confession of Faith, The chief end of man is to bring glory to God and or by enjoying him forever. And thus, enjoying God pleases God, while at the same time it should make us happy. So who doesn't want to be happy? We all do. But where do we find happiness? You might suggest that happiness is found in lots of having lots of money, possessing things, pleasing ourselves with all the luxuries that our society offers. But in reality, they don't really make you happy. And yet there are cultural groups uh, not too far from here that don't actually have very many things that our society offers, and yet they seem to be happy not having them. They have no electricity, no cars, no TV, no air conditioning. How would you live without many of those things? How many of you could live without your cell phone or spending time on social media. I'm not suggesting that we give up the benefits of our technological age, but the Bible warns us not to be enamored with those things, nor with the people who espouse those things, who inevitably influence us, because neither leads to happiness. So then, what does the Bible say that leads to happiness? I'm glad you asked. Turn with me in your Bibles to the very first Psalm, Psalm 1. You have read this psalm many times and have actually heard sermons on it. But I'd like to look at it from the perspective of who or what influences you and what makes you happy. Shouldn't we as Christians be the happiest people on the face of the earth? We are the most blessed. If so, then what is our happiness based? Is it based on our circumstances? Is it based on our feelings? Is it based on how others treat us? 
Or is it based on God's and his word? Because if it's not, then you won't truly be happy. Happiness comes when we are content and or delighted with someone or something that we can trust. Happiness is an emotion. It comes from our hearts, from that which is the foundation of our life, our, our core beliefs. It comes from our faith. And if our faith has a solid foundation, if our hearts are solid, based on object, objective truth, then happiness is going to flow up from it and our attitudes and our actions will reflect that contentment. When, however, happiness is not rooted in the truth, then happiness is fleeting at best and often just a facade that people put on to make you think that they are happy. So I want to draw your attention to the very first word of this psalm, which is the word happy or blessed, depending upon the person who translated the psalm from Hebrew and English. Being happy and being blessed are pretty close, but I really think there's a difference between the two of them. I might think that I can make myself happy, but I know I can't bless myself. Only a person or a thing who is greater than you can bless you. Happy is how I feel. Blessed is how I am as a result of someone else's actions. And it's appropriate to say that God blesses us in all sorts of ways, and we've already noted that should make us very happy. We call God blessed because he's the source of all of our blessings. And we ask him to bless us, and we ask him to bless our food, which is why we ask the blessing before we eat our meals. So I'm not sure which is the best word to use in this particular situation, uh, because whether you say happy or blessed, you end up with a person who is happy because he or she is blessed. So let me read this psalm to you, if I may. It says, blessed or happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree, planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in a judgment, nor sinners in a congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked shall perish. Now, this is poetry, and poems draw pictures in our minds, so let's try and unpack what the psalmist is trying to tell us and what God wants us to learn from it. But let's notice, first of all, that happiness comes from a life which is founded on the Word of God. Now, the psalm begins by declaring that there is a blessed or a happy person. So who is this happy or blessed person? Well, this is person is one who does not do something but does do something else. The happy person does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. A truly blessed person does not go there. And so the psalmist in poetic form wants you to know how you can have a happy, blessed life. He begins with a contrast of various kinds of people. And he gives us three groups of three descriptions that are in descending order. First, he says, walk, stand, and then sit. Then he says, don't walk in the council, stand in the way, or sit in the seat. And he says, don't walk in the council of wicked, don't stand in the way of sinners, and don't sit in the seat of scoffers. Now, we can pretty well understand the postures that are being described and mentioned in the first triad, walk, stand, and sit. All three relate to our positioning, 
our relationships with people who influence us. And the order seems to be a, a movement of involvement from casual to serious with people who are wicked, who are sinners and scoffers. And here's the warning. The closer you get to, the more you listen to people who allowed you to influence you, the more you will begin to think like them and act like them and become like them. And you won't be happy. And neither will anybody else around you. Now the counsel or the advice of these people listed in the third group that is the direction of their lives, their way and the positions that they hold to firmly, that they won't move, we're warned that they're not to influence our lives because a righteous person does not follow in their footsteps or stand around with them as they do the things which they espouse in order to make one happier content. And then he mentions three kinds of people who a happy or a blessed person does not have influence his life. Now, the Hebrew word that is rendered wicked is a generic term for all types of people who do wrong things. It's often translated by the word ungodly, and it's used several times in this little psalm. Sinners are those who miss God's mark in life and fall short of God's standards. Sinners is what we all were before we gave our hearts and our lives over to Jesus Christ. A scoffer is one who openly scoffs or mocks at people who live righteous lives. We can see scoffers in the media, in movies, in popular music that permeates our airways today. In fact, Christianity and Christians are mocked at, were ridiculed, were declared to be irrelevant, unintelligent, and now we're even called radicals. So, if a blessed, happy person does not hang with that group of people and does not do what they do or think what they think, what does a happy, blessed person do? Well, look at verse 2. It says, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. So instead of finding pleasure in the words or the ways or the fellowship of the wicked, one who is truly happy finds pleasure in meditating on the word and the ways of God. Now the word law in our text is the Torah. It's all the Bible that the psalmist had, so it gave them instruction about how to live. It was God's words about God's ways. It still is. Now, the point of the psalm is to say that when you experience the word of God so delightful and so satisfying that it captures your heart and your mind day and night and it weans you away from the counsel and the way and the seat of the wicked, when you experience the word of God like that, you are blessed, you will be blessed, and you will be happy. Thus, then, this is the foundation of a blessed or happy life, a life which is founded on the word of God. Now, having broad-brushed the first two verses, some questions come to my mind. Why did the psalmist begin, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Why did he just come out and say it? Don't be wicked, don't sin, and don't scoff. Why would he draw attention to the people who are wicked, who are sinners, who are scoffers? Why did he focus on where we look for influence because basically he says, don't be influenced by the wicked, don't be influenced by sinners, and don't be influenced by scoffers. Why does the psalmist begin the way that he does? Well, one reason is that the contrast he wants to draw is not necessarily wickedness versus righteousness. That certainly is implied. 
But the contrast that he wants to draw is being influenced from one place and being, versus being influenced by another place. Being shaped by one place versus being shaped in another. Being shaped in our thinking and our feelings by the wicked, the sinner, and the scoffer versus being shaped in our thinking by the law of God, the word of God. And so he sets up verse 1 the way he does to prepare for the contrast in verse 2. In verse 1, he says, don't give your attention to the ways of the world through the wicked, the sinner, the scoffer, so that you start to delight in their ways. But instead, in verse 2, he says, delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, we should be meditating day and night. Nobody walks in the way of the wicked out of duty. Nobody stands in the path of sinners out of duty. Nobody sits in a seat of scoffers out of duty. We walk and we stand and we sit there because we want to. And we want to because we've been watching them so intently that what they do is attractive. We have meditated. That's just thinking about them without calling it. And we delight in them. And that's exactly how worldliness happens. You start looking at the stuff that the world produces and possesses. You look at it and you think about it so much and then you want it. So you walk and stand and sit in their council and you follow their ways and you end up in their seats. And that's a problem with their influence. And we almost can't get away from it because it's all around us. The billboards, the advertisements, the commercials, the robocalls, the emails from unwanted sources all try to influence our lives to think that the way that marketers want us to think, to buy, and to do. It's not just stuff. It's sociological, and at this point of the year, it's political. And the more they can influence us, hoping that we will think like they do, the more they can control us and fill our minds with their thoughts and their agendas. That's why the contrast in verse 2 refers not to duty and obedience, but to delight and meditation. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Someone said, the only hope against the pleasures of the world is the pleasures of the word. And just like the pleasures of the world are awakened by looking at them long enough, so the pleasures of the word are awakened in the regenerate soul by thinking about them day and night. The psalmist is saying, if you consistently meditate on the instruction of God, if the word of God informs your thinking, happiness is going to be found in him and delight will be awakened in you. Meditating leads to delighting, which frees us from the pleasures of the wicked, the sinner, and the scoffer. And so the psalmist says that when the word of God begins to infiltrate your mind, it's going to shape your thinking to closer align with God's way of thinking, and your heart will be tuned to him. You'll begin to delight in what God has done, what God is doing, and what God has promised to do in and through you. Psalm 37, verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. When your desires align with God's, so that your heart is tuned to him, he'll give you the desires of your heart. Now, it's not stuff that's being referred to here. It's the important things that are valued in life. For when your desires align with God's, you will literally be better than you deserve to be. The psalmist gives you an illustration then of what all this means. And he provides for us a picture of what the life of a blessed or a happy person really is. 
It's a picture that all of us can draw in our minds because it's a life that is like a tree. That then takes us to verse 3, where we ask, what's up with the tree analogy? Why doesn't verse 3 just come right out and say, when you meditate on God's word and delight in what you see, then you will not act wickedly, you will not act sinfully, and you will not scoff. That would have rounded things out pretty nicely, I think. I've thought a lot about this lately, and, and here's what I've come up with. The truth is, we don't remember most of what we hear. Think of all the sermons that you have heard Pastor Williams preach. How many of those do you remember? Don't answer that. We do, however, remember more of what we see. And we all know what a tree looks like. So in this case, a picture is worth a thousand words. Now the answer is that the psalmist wants us to see that the life of the godly is like a tree bearing fruit. It's not like a laborer picking fruit off the tree. It's not the actions that make us godly. It's what flows from our hearts causing us to live godly lives. And so in verse 3 he says, he's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither in all that he does he prospers. So here then is a picture of the Christian life. There's streams of water. That's the life of God flowing through the word of God. In our case, the Psalms. You're like a tree and you've been planted there by God's sovereign grace. Your roots reach the water of life that make your leaves green even during a drought that makes you fruitful when others in the world are dry and barren. Now actually a tree is a good uh, analogy of the way that we process life. Leaves and fruits are the parts of our lives that people see. They're the actions that we do. Now these actions, however, come from our attitudes that have been developed over our years. The foundation of our attitudes are our beliefs. And when those beliefs are influenced by and informed by the world, by ungodly thoughts, sin, fear, and doubt, there's no root system to serve as a foundation for our lives. On the other hand, when our beliefs are founded on the word of God, the promises contained therein, the recognition of God's sovereignty over all aspects of our lives, then our hearts, our souls have a foundation that cannot be taken away. It is deep and it is wide. It anchors our souls. And flowing up from the root system of a tree is sap that takes the water and minerals from the roots and gives it to the tree, sustaining its life. The sap gives life. Now in the spiritual realm... It's the Holy Spirit of God who gives a spiritual life and is willing and able to give sustenance to our lives. If you stop the Spirit's ability to fill your life, you'll wither up and die. The Apostle Paul warned, 1 Thessalonians 5.19, do not quench the Holy Spirit. He got it. In the picture of a tree that the psalmist is painting, reading and meditating on God's word is the way that the roots touch the water. And the result is delight, it is spiritual pleasure in what we see of God and man and life. And from this delight comes all kinds of changed attitudes and behaviors. It adds stability to your life so that it is complete and you are prosperous in God's eyes. I was reminded this week of uh, something I had suggested uh, to some friends of mine that if they read a chapter in the book of Proverbs for every day of the month, 
They will always know what day of the month it is because they read that chapter. And they will be the wisest person in any room that they come to. Today is the 16th of October. Let me just read you a couple of Proverbs from Proverbs 16. Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. How much better to get wisdom than gold? To get understanding rather than silver? Pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Whoever gives thought to the word will discover good. And blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. Gracious words are like a honeycomb. Sweetness to the soul and health to the body. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And one more that I'm appreciating more and more. Gray hair is a crown of glory. It is gained in righteous life. Well, the way that you avoid the counsel of the wicked and the path of the sinner and the seat of the scoffer is not by working hard at being spiritual or doing works of righteousness. It's one by being happy, by delight. And that delight is nourished through meditating on God's instruction day and night. That delight results in our happiness. So verse 3, the psalmist is drawing a picture of a tree. He relates it to a person who exhibits a foundation of a blessed life. He shows us that a person who delights in the word of God and meditates on it will always be like a tree planted firmly by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, whose leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. Let's think about each one of those for just a moment and see how a tree illustrates a happier, blessed life. First of all, your source of strength is the word of God. If you delight in the word of God and it informs your thoughts day and night, you're going to be like a tree planted by streams of water. Now, that doesn't sound significant to us in this part of the world because we almost have plenty of water to nourish trees except in the month of August when we hardly had any rain. But not so where the psalmist lived. Israel is on the edge of a desert. Uh, Where David lived in Judea, he lived in a place, in a desert that extends to the lowest spot on the face of the earth called the Dead Sea. There are no trees around the Dead Sea. But where there is a spring, and there are some, a stream of water, there are trees, strong trees. And that's the condition to which the psalmist refers. Do I have to spell this out for you? You spiritually grow when God's word forms the foundation of your life. When what God's word has to say it informs and invades your mind and you think about it, God speaks to you and you become strong in your faith and your relationship with God and his son, Jesus Christ. It's just like what we do when we listen to Christian music as we did here this morning. Our other thoughts that we had in our mind, they go away. You find yourself content in finding happiness in God's truth. Just like when you go outside and you see the sky ablaze with colors. Doesn't Psalm 19.1 come to your mind? The heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Doesn't that infiltrate your head? Or when you're going through a dark time and despair is all around you. Doesn't Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. 
Doesn't that bring you comfort and consolation? Well, how do you know those things? Well, because you read it. You meditated on it. You thought about it. It fills your minds. You grow in your spiritual life, just like a tree which is planted by streams of water. You were stable. You were nourished. You were well-fed because your strength comes from the word of God. But secondly, your attitudes and your actions reflect your heart, your, your heart. If you delight in the word of God and it's the foundation, you're going to yield your fruit in season. You will be a fruitful person. Now, you might say, well, what does a fruitful person look like? Well, again, I'm glad you asked. The Apostle Paul gave clarity to it by declaring that the fruits of the Spirit are, and you know them, love, joy, and peace, patience, kindness, and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Oh, for more fruitful people. You know who they are. They're refreshing, they're nourishing to be around, they're consistent in their lives. You go away from them encouraged and strengthened in your faith. Their attitudes and their actions are based upon their beliefs, which are rooted deeply in the Word of God. And you'll find that they delight in the Word of God and they spend time meditating on it day and night. And when you do the same, you will find and you will yield fruit in season and out of season. And thirdly, he says, your trust in God enables you to weather life's storms. If you delight in the word of God and it has changed your heart, your leaf does not wither. Now, the point here is that there may be times in your life when the hot winds blow, doesn't seem to be any nourishing rain falling, and all the other trees that are not planted by streams are withering and dying. But in spite of the heat, in spite of the drought, your leaf remains green because delighting in the word of God and meditating on it day and night is like being planted by a stream. And so your blessedness and your happiness is deeply rooted. It doesn't depend on external circumstances. So it doesn't depend on which way the wind is blowing or whether the rain is falling. You get your life from an absolutely changeless source. God as revealed in his holy word. And then fourth, his prosperity comes from God. That leads to the question raised by the final illustration of blessing and happiness in verse 3. It says, and whatever he does, he prospers. Oh, really? What does that mean? Does that mean if you delight in the word of God and you meditate on it long enough, your business is going to make a big profit? Your health is always going to be good. There'll be no food shortages, no car accidents, no violence against your house or your person. Well, there's some reason to believe that such a person will have some of those blessings. Uh, and when you're delighting in the word of God, when you're trusting in it as the foundation of your life, we know that God works for those who trust him and wait for him. But God does not always spare us, his faithful people, from difficult times. There are other verses in scripture that tell us that many are the, afflict many are the afflictions of the righteous. Psalm 34, 19. Uh, we all know life happens. Life doesn't always seem fair. Sometimes life is just plain hard. Loved ones get cancer. Sometimes they get old. Accidents happen. COVID-19 sneaks up on you and death occurs. These times are hard to handle. And as Christians, we're not immune to suffering. It happens. James, the brother of Jesus, tells us, and this is interesting, to count it all joy 
when you meet trials of various kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete. Notice, lacking in nothing. It seems to me that lacking in nothing is pretty close to what the psalmist says and what he calls prospering. You're lacking in nothing. You've got all that you need. And it's the Holy Spirit within you. It's a sap within the tree analogy who helps you through those difficult times. And because of him, you are complete that he enables you to handle those hard times. So a tree is a pretty good analogy of uh, a good picture of our lives. But now that you've heard what it's about, what kind of a tree are you? A strong tree or a sapling? A happy, blessed life is founded on the word of God. It's as stable as a tree and it's a life aware of influences. The second half of the psalm sort of repeats what the psalmist described in the first half. It paints a picture of an unrighteous person and then briefly contrasts the lifestyle of a righteous one. Verse 4 says, The wicked are not so, but they are like the chaff which the wind blows away. So everything that the psalmist said about a righteous person being like a true a tree is untrue of a wicked one. And the Hebrew literally reads, not so the wicked. The wicked's the same word as in verse 1, the one he warns that their counsel is bad and should be avoided. It's the same word he used at the end of verse 6 where he declares that they're all going to perish. These people are all about themselves. Uh, they think they don't need God in their lives. They have no problem looking down on you because you rely and trust on God. These people are self-deluded. I actually question their mental stability. I have a good basis on that. Psalm 14.1. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They're corrupt. They've committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. So in describing the wicked, the ungodly, the psalmist gives us a metaphor of chaff and wheat, which is so familiar it almost doesn't need explaining. He says, not so the wicked, they're like chaff that the wind blows away. So compare the trunk of a redwood tree or an oak tree to a stalk of wheat. The stalk, the stuff of a tree is not going to go away easy. You can't just push a tree and move it over. Chaff of wheat just blows away in the wind, it's gone. The wicked person's deeds evaporate because they have no lasting value in God's economy. So notice then how verse 5 begins. It says, therefore, having given us a comparative picture of trees and stalks of wheat, The psalmist gives clarity to the point he's just made. The wicked will not stand. Now the word stand is not the same word as in verse 1, which says that happy is the man who does not stand in the way of sinners. This is more of a legal word. Like when we say a person has no standing in court of law. He has no right to be there, no standing on the case. Those who are not righteous, those who are ungodly, Those who are wicked have no standing before God and they will ultimately have to spend eternity in a place of punishment because they have no right to be in God's presence. They won't be happy. In addition, there's no definite article in front of the word judgment. It's not necessarily the judgment, it's just judgment. And the phrase stand in judgment means the way that unbelievers handle crises and testings of life. They don't often have the moral strength to cope with the problems that arise in daily living. They can't handle the tough times, and they often use drugs or alcohol to relieve their pain and their anxiety. They thought that their ways would make them happy, 
but they discovered it doesn't work and it doesn't last. Look at many of the lives of the rich and famous if you want an illustration of that. So then in a parallel expression, the psalmist says, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. And this is not a second group of wicked people. It just suggests that wicked people are never comfortable with those who are godly in character and dedication. In fact, they often feel threatened and intimidated, even though we righteous people don't want them to feel that way. We would welcome those who feel that way to come into our gatherings, but they don't come because they think we're beneath them. They think they don't need God, and only us weak-minded people need God. But obviously, they haven't come to know you and how warm and wonderful you really are and how accepting you would be. So then the psalmist comes to the bottom line. He presents the readers with two alternatives of ultimate seriousness. Verse 6. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So you can either be part of the righteous or you can be among the wicked. Those are the two categories of human beings the psalmist is concerned with. And everybody belongs to one or the other. Now, along with these two kinds of persons, the psalmist warns of two destinies in this life and in the judgment. If you are righteous, you're like a tree. If you're wicked, you're like chaff. If you're wicked, your, end will end, your way will end in destruction. If you're righteous, you will be known and attended and protected by God both now and forever. For the wicked, chaff-like, ending in destruction. For the righteous, tree-like, and ending in the glorious congregation of the righteous. So then along with the two types of persons and the two destinies, the psalmist tells us of the essential differences that distinguish the righteous from the wicked. The righteous delight in God's revealed word. They have accepted and received Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord of their life. And they spend time each day meditating, reading God's word, and allowing God's spirit to direct their lives. And the Lord knows this. The wicked, they scoff at God's word and they heap scorn at those who follow it. The conclusion is clear. Blessed or happy are you who delight in God's word as the influencer of your life, rather than joining the wicked, the sinners, or the scoffers. If you spend time reading God's word, if you spend time thinking his thoughts, you're tree-like, you're not chaff-like, and you'll experience God's care forever rather than perish in judgment. And so the blessing, the happiness referred to in verse life, in verse one, is a life that is nourished and fruitful, a life that is long-lasting in the face of drought, and a life whose labor is not in vain, but succeeds and prospers in good, God's good purposes even into eternity. That's the blessing of delighting in the word of God and meditating on it day and night. So what does the psalmist call out for us to do? Well, he says, delight yourself in the word of God. And think about it. Reflect on it day and night. That's the main point of the psalm. It stands as a foundation of a happy or a blessed life. But you might ask, how can I come to delight in the word of God? Well, who wouldn't want to Delight to read a book, the reading of which can change you from chaff to a redwood tree, from a desert dust bowl to a lush green forest orchard. Nobody down deep wants to be chaff. Nobody wants to be rootless and weightless and useless. All of us want to draw strength from some deep river of reality and become fruitful, happy, blessed people. 
And you can be when you commit yourself to spending time with God each day in his word. Allow me to quote William Solomon Hoddle Piper, John Piper's dad, who says, and I quote, Everybody wants to be happy. Sinners seek it in pleasure, fame, wealth, and unbelief, but they seek it in vain. Christians have found the answer to happiness in Christ. And he's right. So what do you do based upon the teaching of this little psalm? Well, first of all, you delight yourself in God and in his word. Not the things of this world which will all burn up someday. But second, stand firm on the truth. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. I think most importantly, be concerned about from where you're being influenced. It's your choice. You can be influenced by the negativity of the world, and you'll end up just like them, in fear, depressed, no hope. And all of that leads to ultimate destruction. Or you can allow God's word to influence your thinking and see how God will transform you into the happy, contented person that God created you to be. And just one last thing. Jesus said, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. May we keep it. Father, your word is so true. We can't find anything in it that is not true and truth. So why would we go anywhere else to find a foundation for our lives? Why would we trust in some philosophy or listen to people who really have an agenda they're trying to push down our throats? We have the truth. But may we live the truth. And as we think about what you have said, may our lives be firm. May the Holy Spirit work through us. May Jesus Christ be praised and honored in the way that we live, in the way that we act, and all that we do. I pray those things in Jesus' name.